From the bottom of the Marianas Trench, this is ASPN, the American Shoreline Podcast Network. News for the pelagic-minded. listening to Delta Dispatches, we're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore the Mississippi River Delta. Hello, Simone. How are you? How's your November going? I hear it's chilly for you down there. Um, it is totally pleasant, actually. It, it um, Yesterday was almost perfect. Today is is almost the same. And so, you know, it did get, it get, got winter-like, Jacques. It was, you know, maybe in the low 60s here. <laughs> and so um, everybody got out the big um, parkas and things like that. But it's actually, we've been in a really nice stretch of weather and thankfully no late hurricanes. And so we just want to close out. I've never wanted November to be over more. Oh, yeah. Let's close out this chapter this season. But glad that you all are getting some much deserved weather. You know, it's so funny. I love that you're like, oh, it's 60 degrees. People are putting on parkas. Um, I was <laughs> outside at a like a park, essentially. And I was wearing um, a fleece and gloves while I walked Winnie. And there were people just running around in shorts and shirtless and swimming in lakes. And I'm like, what, what are these people doing? So you're just clearly, made differently than we make. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We're there. People are discussing the S word for Friday. Um, so, you know, are you ready for that? Do you, <laughs> we will see. I have to, you know, the one thing I have to, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I have to go buy a scraper for my car. It's been mm. so long since I lived in a winter environment that I'm like, no, you definitely need that. Um, or you'll, be in trouble. So we're getting ready, but yeah, more adventures uh, in the, the Minnesota winter certainly to come. Um, well, I'm really excited to dig in. You know, we love to highlight on Delta Dispatches the great science and scientists who work on our coast and help us, you know, understand um, a lot of what's happening in terms of a rest from a restoration perspective and also providing kind of context that and foundation that a lot of our coastal master plan and other projects are based on. So um, this guest is a first time guest on Delta Dispatches. She was referred to us by a a good friend and frequent guest, um, Alex Kolker. Um, So excited to speak with her about a new paper um, that is out called Does Load-Induced Shallow Subsidence Inhibit Delta Growth? Um, So welcome to Delta Dispatches, Elizabeth Chamberlain, assistant professor, and I apologize, I'm going to mess up the pronunciation, but at Wageningen University um, in the Department of Soil Geography and Landscape. So welcome to Delta Dispatches. Yeah, well, thank you for having me here today. And do you mind if we call you Liz? No, that's perfect. (laughs) Okay, great. So it's a bit later in the day for you. Um, So tell us where you're joining from, and please correct my terrible pronunciation of the university where you are. Yeah, so I'm in the Netherlands at Wageningen University. It's spelled like Wageningen. And um, we're a large university in a community here that focuses on agricultural research, environmental research, and sustainable solutions for the future. So what's your role there? You know, where do you work? What do you do? Yeah, I'm an assistant professor in soil geography and landscape. I just started this job a few months ago. and 
in addition to being part of the Soil Geography and Landscape Group, I also work in the Netherlands Center for Luminescence Dating, which is a geochronology lab where we measure the timing of deposition of sediment or the movement of sediment in a landscape. I was just going to mention, but you have ties to Louisiana, though. Obviously, that's how we have you on the show. Yeah, that's right. I did my PhD at Tulane University in environmental sciences. And prior to that, I did a master's at LSU in geology, in the geology and geophysics department there. And I also did my undergrad at LSU. That's really cool. And, you know, um, just definitely want to talk about some of the recent science that you have that was, you know, done here in Louisiana and its relation to the coast. First, I need to ask, I mean, um, there's so much discussion, obviously, and, and this goes back decades about the connection between the United States and the Netherlands and the two nations approach to flood management. So um, being at a university in the Netherlands, working on these issues, what are your perspectives on both the challenges and solutions and, and kind of how the two countries approach kind of flood risk management? Yeah, it's a good question. So the Netherlands has a very long record of working with water or working against water in some cases. And I think today the Netherlands is one of the leaders in water management strategies. And a lot of the strategies that we're looking at here now or that other researchers are working on are framed in the context of nature-based solutions. So trying to incorporate natural processes into our engineering of landscapes with the idea that if we're working with nature instead of trying to build against it, we end up with a system that's more sustainable. So something that is better maintained and maybe healthier and maybe offers more benefits and also works with animals and you know the ecology of, of the landscape. Yeah, there's great added benefits from natural solutions and natural infrastructure that we love. And I actually saw, um, and my colleague Natalie Snyder did a blog on it, um, on Environmental Defense Fund's blog, but that the Army Corps released for the first time ever um, guidelines for using nature-based solutions to reduce um, flood risk. And, you know, it, it was uh, put together by experts from around the world, I imagine, including the Netherlands, the United States, and, and many other countries. So, um, I guess that was an exciting moment for, you know, those solutions to move forward and to have there be some consensus around the need to use nature, right, to help us push back against floodwaters and, and, and retain floodwaters and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I think that um, these river and sediment diversions that are planned, like the one at Myrtle Grove, can be seen as a type of nature-based solution, too, because it's connecting the river with the floodplain and allowing the river to build land in a way that mimics and uses natural processes. So like what we would have seen before engineering with crevasse flays feeding sediment and water to the flood basin, except in this case, it's an engineered channel that we can control when it operates and when it delivers water and sediment. Yeah, it's so interesting. I, you know, as a communications professional, think a lot about language and, and use of language. And in, the, in Louisiana, we talk about coastal restoration, right? And then I think more broadly in kind of policy circles in DC and through like environmental defense fund audiences, they're often talking about natural infrastructure. And so, you know, one of the things I said is like, look, the mid Area sediment diversion is essentially the largest natural infrastructure project in the country, at least to date. And, and certainly a great time of uh, a great type of natural infrastructure project. So I'm glad that you agree, but um, I want Simone to kind of dig in some to some to the, the news of the day and the, the paper that you're here to, to t highlight. So Simone, why don't you kick us off with 
digging into does load-induced shallow subsidence inhibit delta growth? That's Jacques' very polite way of telling me I need to be better about my science and learn more. So Liz, why don't you tell us um, more about the new study that you're working on and and how it, it relates to some of the things that we're thinking about here in Louisiana? Yeah, so this is a paper that just came out in JGR Earth Surface in 2021 in October. And we're looking at a long-term record from the Mississippi Delta, from a place called the Lafouche Subdelta. And we're using the information in the stratigraphic archives there to estimate how the land has subsided or how elevation is lost in, in this area over longer time scales and what relationship that has to the substrate, to other factors like faulting, um, total thickness of Holocene sediment, and also so, to overburden or how much sediment has been loaded onto what we're looking at. So those are my people in that Lafouche subdelta. So what what are some of the main findings? Well, I think one of the really interesting things we found was that up to half of the sediment that's deposited onto the delta, well, let me rephrase that differently. If we have a surface in this setting and we load a certain amount of sediment on top of it, the elevation that's gained, we lose 50% of that due to subsidence. Wow, in that particular subdelta area, right? Yeah, in this area, which is characterized by the delta over... From 1600 to 600 years ago, this is a portion of land that formed by the delta growing out into open water. So it's underlain by shallow bay muds and then a sequence of prograding delta deposits. And, and that's so interesting. It, I like your description of that bit. But so for people to better understand, they these subdeltas were built up and then abandoned because the river found a new route and would build another one, right? That was just part of the process. And so that that um, time period that built that Lafouche subdelta was was that long ago. Yeah, exactly. So the river hasn't always been in one place. The Mississippi River has moved with time over the last several thousand years, and it's built different portions of coastal Louisiana. So moving from the Teche area over to St. Bernard and creating things like what's now the Chandelier Islands that have been caused by reworking of that old St. Bernard subdelta, and then evulsing down the Lafouche Channel and building the area in Lafouche and Terrebonne parishes, and then from there moving to the modern river channel. And so this landscape that we were looking at was active. It was the main pathway of the river from about um, 1600 to 600 years ago. So what made you pick the Lafouche Delta specifically? Why, why did you want to focus there? Well, it's nice for several reasons. One, it's a pretty big area, so that lets us look at different processes that happen in different parts of a subdelta, right? So we can look at things like places where there's really thick overburden or overbank sediment versus more coastal places where it's very thin. And we could also capture activity of faults or try to capture whether they were contributing because the area is cross-cut by several fault zones. And finally, looking at a delta that has recently completed its entire lifespan allows us to look at the end product of subsidence. Like, what's the final result of this? 
And so, Liz, to dig in on that, I mean, you were discussing, you know, you mentioned faults, but also, um, you know, there's implications into thinking about some of the sediment diversions that are planned as this, as part of the state's coastal master plan. Um, and the findings could actually be, you know, positive in terms of the use of sediment diversions. So can you talk a little bit about that connection, um, you know, in terms of some of the projects that are planned? Yeah, sure. So we found this 50% elevation loss due to loading. So when we're loading, we're consolidating the sediment underneath. And say you add one meter of sediment to something, you're going to end up with 50 centimeters only of gained elevation over the time scale that we looked at here, which is several hundred years to a thousand years. But then we used that as an input to a model that was developed by our colleague, Wan Suk Kim, who's also a co-author on this study. And we found that even with that pretty high rate of compaction due to loading, it only showed a modest reduction in delta growth in our modeling. So in the model delta, the growth that was accomplished was only reduced by 13%. And, and you mentioned faults. I mean, I know there's been some conversation around the Im- implications of faults on coastal restoration projects. Um, you know, did your study find anything in terms of uh, how faults might affect certain projects? Yeah, because our area is cross-cut by several faults and we looked at multiple sites in this area, we were able to look for broad trends in subsidence due to faulting. And we didn't see any signature of that in our data. So it suggests that if any of the faults in this area are presently active, they're only having at most very regional effects, but not any broad scale effects. So faults may be locally important in the Mississippi Delta for things like subsidence, but they don't appear to be driving any broad trends over the space and time scales that we looked at. So Liz, how exactly did you do the research? You know, How long did it take? What exactly was all involved? This was research that I started during my PhD at Tulane University with Bjorn Tornquist, who's a professor there. And the first thing we wanted to know was how the Lafouche subdelta formed. And for this, we went out and did hand coring, and we looked at the sediments, and that allowed us to reconstruct how much land was built by this lobe of the delta. And we also used optically stimulated luminescence, or OSL dating, which is what the lab I work with in the Netherlands specializes in. And we use that to get a sense of the timing of the formation of this lobe. And that's work that we published in 2018 in Science Advances. But an interesting factor in that was that we identified these mouth bar deposits and these serve as a paleo sea level indicator. So they form, they grade up to sea level. And by OSL dating these deposits in Lafouche, we were able to look at paleo sea level. And then by looking at the present day elevation of these deposits, we could see how much they'd subsided. And that's how we were able to arrive at our conclusions for this study. I hope you were taking notes, Simone. There's going to be a quiz on next week's episode. Yes, I think I'm busy. <laughs> but I got. Simone, I think it's fascinating. I love, yeah. I actually love, you know, the detail of hand coring and, you know, just you don't kind of realize all the work that goes sometimes when you see these papers, right? How much was invested, um, you know, physically and intellectually into these. Um, so I don't want to to make light of it. I, I do really appreciate the hard work. It was hundreds of meters 
in total that we cord by hand. And a lot of that work I did with some other um, (laughs) colleagues and friends who were also doing PhDs or postdocs at Tulane at the time. And we had a lot of fun doing it. (laughs) It was also a lot of hard work and a lot of sweat. Yeah. That brings up so many questions. I'm like, where does Tulane house their sediment cores? And like, is there a whole like collection? Do you have to check them out to use them? Mm. Like, it's just fascinating. (laughs) So a lot of this, we didn't collect it. We characterized it in place. And then we, um, we took notes on it. And we only collected sediment for the luminescence dating. So you just leave the yeah. sediment in place that because that would be a well, lot of sediment. <laughs> hand coring. So most of the boreholes that I did for this study were between about six and twelve meters deep by hand, but they're only a couple centimeters in diameter. So it creates a small pile of mud, and then as best as we can, we push that back into the borehole to cap it. Yeah, got to keep it all in place. And well, speaking of mud, you know, there's so many things about Louisiana's coast and the science that goes into it and how dynamic it is. Um, and one of the things that I think, you know, the lay folks like ourselves, Simone and myself, um, may not always realize is, you know, the different types of soils on Louisiana's coast and how that those soils are affected differently by something like subsidence. So can you talk a little bit about that dynamic of soil type and and, you know, how soil type affects subsidence, for example. Yeah. So in our study, we were looking at these mouth bar sand deposits as our sea level indicator. So that's a very sandy deposit. And then underneath them was a lot of bay mud. And so our study really speaks toward the types of deposits that you typically find in a shallow bay or receiving basin, like the basins that the engineered diversions will feed into. And it was interesting to know that because there wasn't a lot of information about these kind of long-term or deep um, long-term subsidence rates in these types of settings. A lot of the work on subsidence in the Mississippi Delta over geologic timescales, over hundreds to thousands of years, has been done using radiocarbon dating of peat deposits, so organic-rich deposits that formed in a, a marsh or uh, um, wetland environment. And we found that at well, so peats are very known to be compressible, but we found that the cumulative subsidence at our sites that were underlain by the mud was actually greater than previous studies had identified for sites more inland that were underlain by peat. So Liz, that, um, while this is really um, interesting, I do I want to focus on um, some prior work that you had You previously researched how prehistoric populations responded to changes in river pathways in the Delta area. I think that's so interesting. So can you talk about the people part of some of your research? Yeah. And um, that's a topic I'm really interested in because part of why we want to understand how deltas evolve is to engineer them sustainably today and to, you know, make them sustainable for human populations. And then also because people are having such a, an effect on surface processes and on geomorphology of, of landscapes today. So the work that I've done on geoarchaeology in the Mississippi Delta has been with my colleague, Jay Armetta, who's an assistant professor at Florida State University. And we've looked at the distribution of earthen mound sites in the Lafouche subdelta and how that relates to the natural geologic processes of delta formation. 
I think that's just so interesting. So interesting. So what are you, which, what's next? You've done some cool stuff in the past. So what's next? What are you focused on now from a research standpoint? Right now, a lot of my um, recent work from the Ganges Brahmaputra Delta is my focus. And I'm working on publishing some of my findings from working in Bangladesh during my postdoc, looking at river channel network evolution. So how these two big, like some of the biggest rivers on earth, how they moved with time and why. And then I also have joined a project in Peru looking at the geoarchaeological record there. Liz, we're going to have to talk about your passport <laughs> and what the <laughs> what the stamps look like there. You you have um, done some amazing work in, in some amazing places. Um, I know you're collaborating on some presentations at an upcoming conference. Unfortunately, you won't be there, but you've done a lot of work um, with some of the folks that will be presenting there, the American Geophysical Union Conference. So tell us about that conference and um, why it's important to the scientific community. Yeah, so it's a big annual conference for geology and geophysics in um, America and really in North America as well. And a lot of people come to it, tens of thousands of attendees. So there's a lot of exciting new science presented. And this year is really exciting because it's in New Orleans. So I expect that there will be really good information and new ideas on coastal systems and deltas, including in Louisiana. That's Really fascinating, Liz. I mean, to, to, to just see your path that you've described today on the show, you know, kind of starting at LSU, going to Tulane, doing your postdoc in Nashville. Now you're in the Netherlands. You're studying deltas all over the world after kind of having really focused on the Mississippi River Delta. So, you know, I would imagine if I were an aspiring geologist, I'd be like, wow, that that is really um, impressive. So what inspired your path? Did you always want to study earth scientists, sciences and be a geologist? No, it was something I came to later in life. And after some experience, I focused my undergrad first on animal science, thinking that I might want to go to vet school. But I got some experience working with animals and found that I don't enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> they do things that they're not always cute not and cuddly, do. right? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I also, while I was an undergrad, I studied writing and uh, art, which I enjoyed a lot. But I graduated right before the economic recession, and it was very hard to get a job in the types of things I really was excited about at the time. And since then, I came into the geology, and I, it when I was exposed to it, it just really clicked with me after living in Louisiana, because I think in Louisiana, these surface processes that are shaping the landscape, they have such an immediate impact on life there. And so I just really liked the discipline. And it also, it's a good discipline career-wise because there are a lot of different types of employment in it. So I liked that from a practical standpoint as well. Yeah, those are some some good points. Um, Jock stole my question. That's my favorite question is to ask if if little Liz always wanted to be a, a geologist. Um, but I, I'll go um, with the next step after that. What advice um, would you have giving um, students who might want to pursue a career in geology and coastal earth sciences? Tell us um, if you could go back to those days. Would you change anything? Would you do anything differently? Um, for any students that might be in, listening? Yeah. Well, 
like I said, there are a lot of different career paths you can take within geoscience. And so I think it's nice to be aware of those. So whether you might want to go into industry or exploration or academia or restoration or consulting or working for nonprofits, there's so many directions you can go once you start to learn about this field and once you become a geoscientist. And so I think it's really good for students to be aware of these diverse options for employment and maybe to get some experience while they're students through internships or field work that can help them make decisions about next steps. Good advice. Really good, good advice. advice. Yeah. And um, we love highlighting, you know, those career paths on Delta Dispatches. So thank you for sharing your perspective. Well, Liz, we have one last question um, that's tradition on our show. It is the fun question. Um, and so um, I will ask you this week's fun question. Simone might have a follow-up because she often says my questions aren't fun enough. But <laughs> oh, that's not true. Not true. <laughs> well, you know, we I like to kind of keep it, uh, I like to mix it up. So if you have another follow-up question, Simone, you can go with it. But um, my question to you, Liz, is having studied and kind of researched deltas around the world, do you have a favorite? Is there a Delta mm. that you're just like, you know, this is my, this is my favorite Delta? I like that question a lot. Um, <laughs> it changes a little bit. Ah. It depends on how my work's going, I think. Right now, my favorite Delta would be the Mississippi Delta. Uh, good answer. Maybe I'm just homesick. <laughs> um, I was going to ask you, um, if you if you would vacation at a Delta, right? Not just work at a Delta. What Delta would you go to? You know, I would love to see Egypt someday. And the great record of human history in the Nile Delta. That sounds like a great trip. So maybe we can, you know, plan a Delta Dispatches on the road and meet you in Egypt um, to do an in-depth interview um, in the Nile Delta. Well, Liz, thank you so much. I know you're incredibly busy and kind of, um, you know, it's uh, getting late for you in the day in the Netherlands, but really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your science and your perspectives. And we'll have to have you back on. You always have an open invitation when you have new science or research that you think would be relevant to our audience. Yeah, well, thank you for having me today. This was really nice and I'd be happy to come on in the future. Sounds great. Well, I will give the coastal stat of the week. Um, folks may have seen that Congress passed the infrastructure bill um, think over the weekend. And there is going to be significant funding coming to Louisiana for coastal restoration and resilience. So maybe we can highlight some of those specifics with a guest on an upcoming show. But this is from a New York Times article highlighting really what's at stake in terms of the passage of this bill. Um, and I think it was Chris Lavelle that said billions of dollars in federal funds will begin flowing to other communities around the country that have been or expect to be hit by extreme weather events that scientists say are growing more frequent and more destructive by climate change. Those climate impacts are already being felt in every corner of the United States. There were 22 climate disasters that cost at least $1 billion each in the United States in 2020, shattering the previous record of 16 events, which occurred in 2017 and 2011, according to NOAA. Um, so yeah, really um, important in terms of what's at stake and, and really great to see um, progress and, and funding, desperately needed funding coming to Louisiana for hopefully some really um, priority coastal master plan projects and other work. So Simone, why don't you give us the co coastal voice of the week, which is very relevant from our guest today. 
Yeah, and and just back to the previous topic, we we will definitely be um, looking at the infrastructure bill pretty hard about how it pertains to Louisiana, and I think the suggestion should suggestion of having a guest kind of unpack some of that for us is is a really great one because I think it'll impact us here in Louisiana for years to come. So, um, but getting to the coastal voice of the week, um, we want to get to um. Oh, Ah, a familiar voice. Let me read it first and then I'll tell you uh, who said it. So deltas and coasts are widely recognized as among the most densely inhabited, biodiverse and economically pivotal places on earth. These key regions are also experiencing unprecedented change that threatens their future sustainability. This means that research on a fundamental science on that research on fundamental science, such as how river channel networks change with time has immediate applications to Delta management that can improve the livelihoods of local residents. This connection between people and their landscape in Southern Louisiana is inescapable. The Delta is changing so quickly that people living today can remember a much different coastline. The geography of Southern Louisiana is intimately linked to the Mississippi River and its past pathways. These determine the location of major cities, the livelihoods of people, and also the vulnerability of communities to various coastal and riverine geohazards. I became fascinated with these issues and wanted to work on science problems with immediate relevance to society. That was by Liz Chamberlain in an AGU career spotlight. So couldn't have said it better, Liz. Um, Great work there. Just a reminder, if you want to add your coastal voice you can go to MississippiRiverDelta.org slash Restore-The-Coast. All right. Well, another great show. We'll be digging into some science and it sounds like some policy in the weeks ahead. Um, no shortage of topics to talk about. So thank you for joining us today. As a reminder, you can go and subscribe to our show on a number of platforms. You can rate us, share us with your friends. Thank you for listening. And we'll be back next week on Delta Dispatches. Until then, we'll see y'all later, alligators. Alligators.